With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe MySight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacU Health with Micromycel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromycel technology. OIE Broadcasting is the emerging leader in social media. We use scientific entertainment to drive more patients into your office. Visit OIEbroadcasting.com and sign up today. Hello and welcome to the Open Your Eyes podcast. I'm Dr. Kerry Gelb, the host of the documentary, Open Your Eyes. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. Also, please leave comments. Great news, you can now watch our full-length documentary, Open Your Eyes, on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube movies and shows. If you wear glasses or need a spectacle correction, you may have considered refractive eye surgery. Corneal refractive surgery, including LASIK and SMILE, remain the most commonly performed refractive surgeries, both with excellent visual and safety outcomes. Today's guest, Ohio-based optometrist, Dr. Jeff Augustine. Dr. Augustine has devoted his entire career to the optometric management of the refractive surgery patient. Dr. Augustine has written several iconic articles on refractive surgery. He's a refractive surgery educator and lecturer and is involved in many clinical projects. Dr. Augustine, thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate the invite and I'm um, looking forward to sharing this information to, uh, to everybody that's out there that's either interested or would have had a procedure done in the past. Well, I thank you for that. So let's start off with what are the most commonly performed refractive surgeries? And if you could just talk about it, but then we're going to go into detail on each one. Okay. So, you know, my day entails a, a potpourri or a variety of different types of procedures. You know, uh, I work with all, type, all three types of laser procedures, uh, PRK, LASIK, and SMILE. In addition to those three procedures, I work with um, the interocular lenses for lens replacement. Also, I work with ICLs, and I also work with um, patients that uh, require a procedure called cross-linking. So my days have got a variety of different things. Um, and, and as time has gone by, uh, different approaches have occurred. Technology has advanced. It's sort of like the um, evolution from the early 90s to where we are in 2020 today. So, um, go ahead. Now, I, so there's not one in particular that uh, supersedes another. I guess it depends on the patient's, uh, the, the patient's ocular you know, issues, what, what's best for them, what their advocation is, what their occupation is, um, 
what they're what the different the anatomy of the eye. So there's a variety of different decision making when it comes to picking and choosing the right procedure for that patient. The round peg has to go in the round hole. You know, as an optometrist and the optometrists out there, you know, patients are asking us every day, they want refractive surgery. Who's a good candidate for refractive surgery? And then we'll get into the specifics of the different types of refractive surgeries. And so let's start off with who's a good candidate before we go into, and who's a poor candidate? Um, I think you have to look at uh, a couple of different things. Corneal thickness is going to be one of the biggest factors uh, for making it successful um, as far as the decision-making concerning which particular procedure. Also, those patients that may be becoming contact lens intolerant. Also, those patients that may have jobs and, and different types of hobbies and things that they're looking for to become free of wearing glasses and contacts. So there's not one in particular, there's a whole variety of different decisions that go into making what would be a primary uh, candidate for laser vision correction. And who's a poor candidate? A poor candidate would be those patients that have uh, thin corneas that may, not, that may not qualify for a laser procedure. Um, some patients' expectations may be uh, extremely high. They may not be a good candidate for the procedure. Um, those patients that may have extreme dry eye uh, may not be a good, good candidate for the procedure. Um, those patients that have uh, different corneal diseases such as keratoconus are certainly not uh, a good candidate for the procedure. So there's a, a host of different contraindications to having laser vision correction. So let's talk about the tests that you do, the workup. What are the tests that are done uh, pre-op for... Uh, a refractive surgery patient? Okay, there's a, a variety of diagnostic tools that we use uh, in order to uh, make sure that the patient is a good candidate. Uh, we do um, what is called uh, uh, topography. We also do pectimetry. Topography is looking at the surface of the eye and looking at various curvatures to make sure that um, you know, the astigmatism is assessed properly. We also look at pachymetry. Now, pachymetry is corneal thickness, and you have to be absolutely sure that the patient's got ample corneal thickness in order to make sure that it's safe. Also looking at the uh, lens itself inside the eye to make sure that there's no cataract formation. Retinal assessment is critically important as well. And also uh, meticulous, uh, understanding of the refractive air of the patient, both in a dry state and as well as a cycloplegic state to look at the accommodation of the patient. So those are all, you know, those all go into the testing. There are some other tests that we do in, in regards to um, assessing dry eye uh, before the patient undergoes the procedure. So the patient actually is there for about two, two hours when it comes to uh, a workup on a laser vision correction patient. Now, we also do ultrasounds, things of that nature for those patients that are, might be going, undergoing maybe a, a lens-based procedure, such as uh, an ICL or would be um, lens replacement surgery. Now, you mentioned corneal thickness and pachymetry. What is the best way to do that for a refractive surgery candidate? Well, the, the uh, diagnostic system that I'm working with is called a Penicamp. And so the Penicam is able to access 
uh, anterior curvature, posterior curvature, corneal cur the corneal curve, as well as the uh, corneal thickness. So that's my go-to for, uh, for looking at corneal uh, thickness issues. And what kind of thickness are we looking at that to make them a, sur a, can a surgical candidate? You know, obviously it'd probably be different of its PRK, LASIK or SMILE. So if you could just walk us through the thickness and what kind of thickness that we're looking for. Well, normal thickness of a cornea is around 550 microns, okay? And for when you're talking about SMILE, LASIK and PRK, they're all basically the same formula. It's called the Mullern formula. And what that's doing is it's looking at the diopters the patient has and what type of optical zone we're going to be working with when it comes to PRK, LASIK, or SMILE. The average amount of uh, corneal thickness that uh, is either ablated or removed it, per diopter is about 17 microns. So for instance, if we have a patient that comes in who's a minus three diopter sphere, and we're going to work with an optical zone of let's say 6.5, uh, the amount of tissue removed for that particular patient's gonna be around, well, you have to multiply three times 17. So that's gonna be about, I believe, uh, 51 microns. So you have to look at the microns that are being removed out of the cornea, look at the corneal structure and make sure that the integrity of the cornea is maintained in, in regards to strength. So everything that we do is all mathematics and we have to leave a certain amount of tissue in the base of the cornea to maintain the structure of the cornea. Right, so when we're looking at the, the pachymetry, is there any pachymetry that the optometrist could do in his office if they don't have a sophisticated instrument a very expensive instrument like a pentacam, can they just use a DGH or to get it an idea how, how thick the cornea is or an yeah, OTT? You have to, I think it all goes together with, um, you have to have topography in order to look at the curvature of the cornea, in addition to looking at the pachymetry or the thickness. You can do a handheld pachymeter, but they, that may not give you, uh, that may give you a central reading, but you also wanna have peripheral readings on the cornea to fully assess if there's any type of uh, thick, any thin cornea in the periphery. But, you know, certainly a handheld instrument could help uh, get things started for you. Now, are you using a wave scan? Yes. So tell us what a wave scan does and why it's important. Now, a wave scan uh, can help me in a couple different ways. It can help me with um, assessing the refractive air on an objective measurement. So I, I use that primarily for that. And does it, so you're using it like an autorefractor? Are you, right. it, how about for aberrations? Yeah, the wave scan can also give us aberrations as well. Um, I haven't used, the one I used to work with quite a bit was uh, the Visex had a nice, a wave scan. The eye I know, design? The eye yeah, design? I, I didn't, I don't know, I no longer work with that one. I work with, um, the, um, the NIDAC, I, there's a NIDAC uh, wave scan that I look at as well as, we also work with an Alcon one as well. And how does that, what, what else does it give that may be different than the typical order refractor that, that somebody may get in, in an optometrist's office that also gives aberrations? Uh, yeah, it'll, it, it assesses coma, spherical aberration and trefoil. It, it can give me an idea if the patient does have 
a lot of aberrations prior to the procedure, but it also can give me an assessment uh, postoperatively as to what may be bothering a patient in regards to, you know, nighttime halos and glare and that type of thing. And if you could explain some of these aberrations that you just mentioned, trefoil coma, what is that? What is it? Why do some people have it? Why do other people not have it? And uh, why is it important to fix it when you're doing refractive surgery? I think you want to get the best quality of vision for the patient. So by looking at those higher order aberrations and maybe and working with a, a certain type of a laser that could uh, assess that and better treat that, then, then that, that will increase the quality of the patient's vision for uh, nighttime. Uh, the biggest, the thing that I find is that uh, the more dramatic uh, curvature changes and amount of laser vision correction that occurs on the patient, the higher the, the probability of having those type of aberrations. And do you use AccuTarget to look at scatter? Yes, I do. I like AccuTarget quite a bit. I use that also for um, uh, looking at the dry eye patient as well, because that, that assesses that as well. I used to use that quite a bit with um, when I was working with the camera inlays for presbyopia. So a lot of people, a lot of optometrists, you know, the public, you know, we don't use AccuTarget uh, for these uh, optical scatter index. So can you give us a little bit more detail about what it does and how it helps you and to help the patient? Well, I use the ocular scatter to kind of look at and assess uh, the quality. It, it gives me a good idea of the quality of the tear layer as far as, and it also gives me a, an idea if there's any uh, uh, lenticular aberrations associated with the lens, because it can tell me a little bit about cataract formation. So that's why I use the, the scatter index on the AccuTarget. And if, if you notice there's a lot of scatter, how does that affect your decision as far as whether to go forward to do refractive surgery? Well, maybe an indication to uh, maybe get the, the tear quality, it can get the, I need to get the tear quality better for the patient, get the, um, and get a better assessment of, of the lens inside the eye. And it may be, if we, if I get a, a higher scatter index, then it, we may be leaning towards a lens-based procedure than more of a laser-based procedure. How often are you fooled when you're doing that on, on the younger patient? that you don't realize, you don't think there's a cataract there, but you know, that comes up positive. I think then I would more lean towards more assessing the, 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 the quality of the tears and the surface of the cornea. If, if, if it was a younger patient, I looked in and the lens was clear. And what kind of workup does, is being done for dry eye prior to refractive surgery? And how will that affect the outcome of the surgeries? Well, um, with the advent of working with the smile patient, uh, I've had a dramatic decrease in the amount of dry eye patients uh, postoperatively with the laser vision correction patients. Uh, just because of the mechanics of smile versus the mechanics of PRK and also with, the LAS with LASIK because no flap is created with smile. It's all just done internally. So the corneal, nerve, the corneal uh, nerves are maintained in the integrity, which helps uh, with the dry eye postoperatively on the smile patients. I generally don't have to use any type of, um, any type of uh, pharmaceutical such as Zydra or would be Restasis in those smile patients. It's very rare compared to that Elasic and PRK. 
Now, if somebody's already on one of those dry eye medications, such as Zydra uh, or Restasis, how does that affect your decision making going forward? So, if somebody's at home and they're they want they're interested in refractive surgery, but they have dry eyes and they're already on Zydra, or they're already on uh, Restasis, how does that affect your decision making? Well, in in the clinic that I work, we have a dry eye specialist. And so if they come in with the predisposition of, of dry eye with uh, being on those particular medications, I'll, I'll refer them over uh, to, his name is uh, Tom Chester, and he handles and gets those patients prepped and ready for surgery. They may require punctal plugs, they re may require um, some other uh, modalities to help treat that dry eye. And how about the, you mentioned OZ before, the optical zone. Why is that important, the size of the optical zone when you're doing this type of procedure? Well, the optical zone is really important because if we have a smaller optical zone, then, we, uh, then less tissue is going to be removed out of the cornea. The larger optical zone will remove more tissue out of the cornea. So we're able to go between a 6.0 and a 6.5 optical zone when working with our smile patients. So instead of removing, let's say, 17 microns out of the cornea, with a with a six five zone, then we can maybe use a six O zone and go down to fifteen microns, which preserves tissue. And if you preserve tissue, then 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 you have a better outcome. Well, by preserving the tissue, maintains the maintains the structural integrity of the cornea, because we want to maintain uh, the the strength of the cornea, so we can change the optical zones based on uh, the the pechymetry. And, and, maintain, and also maintaining a, a base. Uh, we like to stay with the smile patients. We like a residual base of about 275 microns. And you mentioned, or it's mentioned that, uh, that we want a white to white lift less than 11.4 millimeters. What does that mean? Well, that, that, used, to be, uh, that used to be more important, but it's less important now. Uh, we found that, uh, you know, I work with patients with uh, a white to white of 11. And so it hasn't been a big factor. I think it become, it, I think that's at the beginning when we were working with uh, the procedure, we were more attentive to the white to white. But at this point in time with our surgical, with the surgeons, with their surgical skill, it hasn't been that, it hasn't been that critical. And white to white, you mean the horizontal diameter? Yes. Yes. Okay. So now See, that, that becomes important with the smile patients because the Visumax docks to the cornea with the, uh, with the LASIK procedure, it's not quite as, you know, if we're using a different type of, you know, a uh, different type of laser system, it may dock to the conjunctiva. So the white to white isn't, isn't as big, as big of a factor. Right. And since the pandemic, uh, the number of refractive procedure seems to have increased. It looks like the, the statistics show that it has increased. I think uh, some of the reasons people, their glasses were foggy, they're, you know, they're spending a lot of time at home looking at a computer, they maybe have more time. Uh, have you found that to be the case? Uh, yes, I have seen that. Um, I've, I've seen an increase in the procedure. A lot of it has to do with wearing the mask and the fogging of the glasses. Um, people tend to not be uh, going on trips and vacations, so expendable income is going into uh, this elective procedure. 
I think in all elective procedures have increased. Uh, from the from a cosmetic standpoint of uh, of um, let's say a lid lid procedures, um, cosmetic procedures have increased, and also uh, the laser, uh, the refractive surgery side has increased as well. And how about the increase in myopia over? you know, over the years uh, with the increased digital devices, kids not going outside as much. How is that going to affect refractive surgery going forward, considering by about 2050, they expect half the world population to be myopic? Well, uh, when it comes to the efficiency of the procedure, uh, the laser procedure, actually, I prefer to um, work with myopic patients versus hyperopic patients. They tend to have a better outcome uh, working with myopia, but I, you know, I think that you're exactly right in regards to what's happening in the world. Our our environment's changing, and our near point uh, tasks have have dramatically increased. So certainly, we're going to see an increase in in myopia as well. And the incidence of high myopia over over, over minus five is about ten percent uh, globally, and. As you mentioned before, at the beginning, there is an option for people that are very, very nearsighted uh, with, uh, with, with, with implants for, with, uh, with implants that actually have a prescription that we're fake, we call fake implants. Right. I work with, um, I work with the star uh, EVO ICL. And so um, if those, those, those particular patients can be extremely uh, happy patients to work with. I've worked with the ICLs since uh, 2005, and what's what, what's recently changed within within the last uh, couple of years is we see the we're able to correct for astigmatism now with the ICL, and also uh, the periphery dotomy is no longer needed because of what they call the EVO ICL. It's got a small port in the central, central area of it, which allows the aqueous flow to go back and forth. So no PI is created. Uh, I'm, as far as the ICLs go, we're able to do bilateral ICLs same day. And within, the next, within, within a day, those patients are uh, extremely functional and happy. MacU Health, your science born and tested solutions for visual performance, macular degeneration, and dry eye syndrome. New products coming soon. Embrace the science. Let's talk about LASIK. Let's let's uh, dive into LASIK. Laser-assisted in keratomalusis is what LASIK stands for. I think even the doctors forget what what it actually stands for after a while, just by using the acronym over and over again. Let's start off with the type of lasers that are used. There are two types of lasers used in LASIK. Uh, let's talk first about the type of laser that's used to make the flap. What is that laser and how is it different than the one that's used to, to actually change the prescription? Well, the laser that is utilized to create a flap is called a femtosecond laser. And it's, uh, what that does is it makes small little uh, cavitation bubbles in the corneal wall and that causes the separation of the cornea. You can also uh, set it at various levels as far as the flap thickness. It's extremely predictable compared to what I had back 20 years ago with a microkeratome. So the microkeratome was the early instrument utilized to create a flap. And we, uh, I've been working with the femtosecond lasers 
we have a Visumax and we have an IFS, two different types of femtos. And um, both have different nuances associated with them with docking. But um, yeah, the, the femto second lasers have been a fantastic uh, uh, at addition to creating the, the flap for LASIK from a predictability standpoint and ease of and the ease of the patient because the pressure it doesn't it doesn't go up as dramatically as it did with the keratomes. And how high will the pressure typically go up now? Uh, I don't I can't you know on, I can't remember off the top of my head the exact amount of pr pressure increase but I know with the Visumax laser uh, the patient's fixation is maintained throughout the whole uh, lasering process, but I can't give you specific numbers on the pressure. And uh, so now we make the flap and now we have to do the treatment and that's you, we use an eczema laser. If you could talk about the different types of eczema lasers, uh, the uh, wavefront, the ones that use utilize wavefront, non-wavefront and pros and cons. Um, I guess you have to get a pretty good assessment of the patient uh, preoperatively to pick the type of eczema laser that you want to utilize for them. So there's wavefront, there's wavefront and wavefront guided lasers. Um, the technology in that market is continued to evolve uh, and the outcomes with those particular lasers have been fantastic. So tell me about some of the different brands that, you, that, that are used. Uh, well, in our center, um, we, we've been using uh, a NIDEC laser, which is a, a topography-guided laser, and we also use an, uh, an Alcon laser, which also is a uh, uh, topography-guided laser as well. So how do you decide which one you're going to use and, uh, on which patient? Well, generally, uh, the go-to laser for uh, simple myopia is going to be our NIDEC laser. If it's a more sophisticated prescription, um, let's say mixed astigmatism or hyperopia, we tend to go with the Alcon laser. And uh, explain what uh, wavefront guided laser does and how, how that helps and by getting rid of the aberrations. Well, what happens is with those particular lasers, it, it individualizes uh, the patient's cornea, assesses the aberrations and does a specific personal treatment to that particular cornea. And, and that specific treatment, when we're getting rid of the aberrations, does that help with night, night vision afterward? Does that give a little bit more cri a crisp type of vision compared yeah. to the non, compared to the non aberrometer based uh, wavefront lasers? Yes, in, in my experience, uh, you know, they have, the patients have, um, better increased quality of vision at nighttime, as well as quality of vision during daylight hours as well. So, and how long does, patients always wanna know how long does the procedure take? Um, the average procedure, if we're doing a LASIK procedure, takes about uh, eight minutes from start to finish. That's a bilateral procedure. And our, actually our smile procedure takes about seven minutes. It's a little bit quicker uh, than the uh, the laser procedure, because it's only based on one laser, not two. And what's the advantage of LASIK over SMILE? All right, disadvantage. What's the advantage of SMILE over LASIK? Um, there's there's probably um, 
if we look at some of the data, um, the one advantage is that there's less dry eye affiliated with the smile patient. Postoperatively, patients can resume quicker and normal activities because there's no possibility of flap trauma. So patients do, they don't have to wear eye shields uh, at day, the day after or immediately following the smile procedure. Uh, you can get back to exercise uh, within a day uh, with the smile procedure and, uh, get, and patients can wear eye makeup within a day or so or within a day after the smile procedure as well. Um, research, is, research is pointing that there's less uh, chances of what they call corneal ectasia with the smile procedure because uh, the, uh, there's no flap created on these patients. So the wall isn't, the wall isn't being weakened. Explain what corneal ectasia is and why we're so worried about that. Uh, corneal ectasia is, a, is a, um, a complication associated with laser vision correction that the corneal wall becomes weak, kind of like a, an like a tire that's got a weak spot in it. And if you have a tire with a weak spot in it, it kind of bulges in the opposite direction. And so that's what's happening with these patients that have corneoctasia is that there may have been uh, an issue with an aggressive amount of tissue removed or, or would be they have a predisposition for keratoconus that wasn't, uh, that wasn't, um, that wasn't uh, um, let's say, wasn't uh, showing up when they initially had the procedure uh, that, may have, that may have been there that wasn't diagnosed. So corneoctasia is a weakening of the corneal wall, which results in optical distortion of the cornea. But we're able, to, we're able to treat a lot of these patients as far as, um, let's say the patient does have corneoctasia, we do a procedure called cross-linking on them, which makes the corneal wall rigid and prevents further ectasia. And then they may be, they may be able to undergo additional uh, laser procedures such as PRK to recorrect their vision. And how often do you get ectasia you know, unexpectedly as a side effect? Uh, I can't specifically give you the statistics of it as far as maybe one out of 10,000. It's a rare, it's a very rare procedure, or it's a very rare condition, especially today when we have such um, really excellent diagnostic platforms to avoid that type of complication uh, after a laser correction. Years ago, we didn't have the diagnostic equipment that was as predictable today that could look into um, warning signs for developing corneal ectasia. So walk us through a LASIK patient how the procedure is done. Uh, and then we'll, we'll go into the post-op. So we did the, well, we talked about the pre-op. It's yeah. gonna be a, a two-step laser procedure. The first step is gonna be with the femtosecond laser that's gonna create the flap. The second portion will be with the eczema laser. The flap will be elevated and, a, and, a, and the ablation will take place on the corneal bed. And then the flap will be repositioned. So a two-step two -step laser process. And what kind of medication would they need post-op and how long would they need it for? Well, actually, preoperatively, we, I start with having the patient uh, do lid scrubs for three days to have, to have a sterile environment around the lids and lashes. And post-operatively, I have the patient on a topical antibiotic four times a day for a week. And I also have them on uh, 
uh, topical uh, prednisone four times a day for the week. Sometimes I extend the, the prednisone based on the refractive error and the amount of treatment that may, uh, they may undergo. I'll keep them on it for additional week twice a day. Also incorporate uh, artificial tears throughout the whole process, incorporate artificial tears preservative free throughout the uh, post-operative period. And what are some of the side effects that people could have from LASIK? Uh, probably the number one side effect initially may be halos and glare, and that's secondarily due to corneal edema, but in most cases that resolves uh, after, after the healing has occurred. Generally, they, they have that for about a month. Uh, you have to be also careful of uh, what they call strii or folds in the flap, and you have to be cautious of that initially. You know, that's why we have the patient wear the eye shields, be careful touching or around the eye, a bump, a rub may cause a wrinkle in the flap, and that can be easily, that can be easily adjusted uh, surgically. Another complication that you have to be careful with is dry eye, and that can be assessed preoperatively, and with the more aggressive approach postoperatively, uh, patients will generally uh, not have the dry eye uh, uh, chronically long-term. Another one that we have to keep an eye out for is what they call epithelial ingrowth. And that it, what that is, is the cells on the top surface called the epithelium uh, can be uh, migrate underneath the flap itself and proliferate in the interface. So you have to keep a close tab on that. So those are gonna be probably your top five uh, issues to face. And a lot of those are not long-term complications, but just short-term complications. Uh, such as the halo glare associated with the edema, the dry eye, epithelial ingrowth, microstrii, those things uh, are, are, tend not to be uh, uh, debilitating complications. Also, you have to uh, keep an eye out for what they call um, uh, DLK. And what DLK is, is an inflammatory response in the interface of the flap and that usually you have to keep an eye out initially for that. That's going to be an, uh, a, real, a relatively, um, uh, a relatively uh, rare complication, but it, it, it can occur. So if you see ingrowth, how does that treat it? Ingrowth is treated uh, by lifting the flap and removing those cells. So you always have to lift the flap if there's ingrowth? So in some cases, we can utilize a YAG laser to... to to um, eliminate the uh, ingrowth as well. And how about if there's DLK, how do we handle that? A couple of different ways I handle DLK. DLK can be handled, one, by lifting the flap and washing the interface, or two, it can be handled by aggressive uh, corticosteroid use. It depends on the, it, to me, it depends on the presentation, whether it be uh, a very diffuse or is it just around the periphery um, if it's diffused throughout the, uh, the flap, I have the surgeons lift and wash. Is there any reason why somebody would get these two type of complications or it just happens? Uh, there's, I think uh, in regards to the DLK, there may be some type of uh, inflammatory response that initiates these white cells to proliferate in the interface. So you have to kind of look at that. Uh, as far as epithelial ingrowth goes, we have to be conscious of the integrity of the epithelium during the surgery. You have to be cautious that the patient doesn't have um, soft epithelium or any type of basement membrane dystrophy 
that could cause those cells to be entrapped in the interface. And what about Sands of Sahara? That was big at the beginning. That's the same thing as uh, DLK, same type of appearance. Uh, what that, that was pretty common, or it wasn't common, but when, when the microkeratomes were being utilized, uh, that's when you saw more of Sansa Sierra than DLK compared to the, the femtosecond lasers that are utilized today. So it's a pretty similar process to DLK. DLK is kind of the new Sansa. They're, they're synonymous, same name. Okay. And people are worried that if they're having a, a LASIK procedure and they sneeze, what, what happens then? <laughs> uh, I don't I'm trying to think if that has uh, occurred. I think if, if you feel the sensation that you're going to sneeze, you can indicate that to the surgeon so he could take the appropriate measures to um, stop the procedure at that point. You got to, and, and we don't want any, we don't want any spray going up into the laser head <laughs> to affect the optics from a sneeze. <laughs> so I, I always felt like the laser. <laughs> that tracks like over you know like uh thousands of eye movements so if you move or whatever the yeah. laser can automatically shut off and kind of moves with you is well it, that would be i think with the sneeze that would be a gross movement rather than a micro movement uh fair enough so how about people who have like autoimmune conditions such as rheumatoid arthritis can they uh have the procedure um, I have worked with uh, patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Um, I guess it depends on the, depends on, uh, the, the uh, corneal integrity as far as those patients tend to be more predisposed to dry eye. Um, the healing responses, um, I, I just recently worked with a smile patient that had rheumatoid arthritis and um, the healing response was, there was no dramatic healing response and normal outcomes and uh, I, I, I continue to work with those particular patients. Now with lacing with the flap, if you have somebody who's a very competitive athlete, maybe even a professional athlete, uh, is, is the flap something we have to worry about? And would we steer them more towards smile or even the older fashioned PRK? Yeah, I, um, I, tend to, I tend to look, when I interview the patient, look at what their hobbies, likes are, those types of things. You know, if they're a martial, they work with martial arts, they're boxers, they're in a, in a job that may uh, have risk for uh, ocular uh, issues, then I tend to lean towards those patients undergoing uh, PRK or would be smile if they, if they qualify, if they qualify for that based on their refractive error. And how about age? Every once in a while, you get a patient who's 55, 60 that wants to have uh, LASIK. What's your feeling about that? I think the biggest thing with those particular patients is to do a really good assessment on um, their lens uh, to make sure that that we you know that they don't have cataracts. Even if they do have early cataracts, it may be a good idea to, to contemplate a lens replacement surgery than would be to do a laser procedure. Also, I got I, I think you know we have to when you're dealing with that age group, you're dealing with monovision patients depending on their job and occupation. And as you know, the accommodation system uh, changes from age 40 up into you know, 60, 70, the accommodation changes based on the, the dysfunctional lens. 
And so I tend to be more, if you hit that age group of 55 to 60, I tend to be more of a lens-based uh, procedure rather than would be a laser procedure. So typically, say they have really no significant cataracts, they don't have any cataracts or so lens changes. Would you talk them out of it and tell them, let's wait until you have a cataract? At this point, you're 55 years old. No, I tend to, I, I discuss uh, clear lens, you know, clear lens replacement or, or uh, refractive lens exchange on them, whether they have a, a cataract or not, you know, they may, they want to, they may want to have a, uh, a multifocal interocular lens put in and, and the technology of those is fantastic now. And so they're able to see both distance and near with minimal amount of aberrations. And how common is a clear lens replacement? And is there an issue doing it? Uh, no, I think it's in our practice, we have the availability to do lens replacement surgery. Um, a lot of centers out there may not have the avail availability to do lens replacement. And so for me, it's a, it's a relatively common procedure, especially in, in when we're talking about high myopia in that, uh, high myopia in that age group or would be uh, any type of hyperopia, because I find that, you know, if you do a, a lens exchange, it's a material that goes inside the eye. There's no biological healing associated with it when it comes to doing a laser-based procedure. It's more of a permanent solution than a temporary solution, because if you end up doing a laser procedure and the lens continues to change, then, then you're, you're chasing your tail. And so I, I, tend, to, I tend to like lens-based procedures. And what do you have a cutoff for uh, corneal procedures like LASIK, SMILE, PRK for age? Is there yeah. a cutoff that you guys use? Yeah, on, on, a, on a cutoff on age, I, I don't, you know, I work with some patients that have, may have had uh, previous cataract surgery that are not happy with their outcome from, cat, from having cataract surgery. And they may be 70, you know, 75 years old. And we do LASIK on top of them to refine their uh, post-operative cataract results. So age, you know, isn't really a, a big factor. I, I work with uh, patients that are 18 years old, you know, that may be going to the military for some, and don't want to wear the glasses and contacts for that all the way up into the seventies. So if they haven't had cataract surgery and uh, do you have a, an age cutoff for, uh, for uh, refractive surgery procedures? Uh, corneal refractive surgery procedures like if so yeah i start really being attentive to say age that again i'm sorry i i, I, I become i become very attentive to age uh when the patient hits about 55 years and older oie broadcasting is the emerging leader in social media we use scientific entertainment to drive more patients into your office Visit OYEbroadcasting.com and sign up today. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromicel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromicel technology. Fitting multifocal contact lenses 
presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. Each generation was supposed to be healthier than the last one. Lifespan was supposed to be increasing. We were supposed to be in this paradise by now. Instead of getting healthier and healthier, it seems to have gone the opposite way. Millennials were projected to be the first generation in history to not outlive the generation before them. We are certainly headed for disaster. I think a lot of people are beginning to question the whole story. We live in a time where the paradigms are shifting. And the optometrist, in my opinion, is one of the best kept secrets. The public doesn't realize about going to the eye doctor. So many different diseases actually manifest in the eye. The back of the eye is the only place in the body that you could actually see the blood vessels. Completely non-invasively, you can screen thousands of people, not just for their eye health, but for their whole body health. Because this disease is here, it's also gonna be here. And I can look into the back of my eyeball and there are expert doctors on the ground who are looking at my eyeball while I'm doing it. The eye is the canary of the mind. The eye is the kingdom. Will everyone please Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.